Well, that wasn't a very long reading, was it? But it's a very important one. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask that you would cause us to be blessed by your word today and that you would give us grace to hear it, to want to hear it, and to want to keep it, for the time is near. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why why do people go to church? I mean, why are we here this morning? Uh, For some people, going to church is something that they do occasionally, uh, maybe Christmas or Easter. Uh, For other people, uh, going to church makes them feel religious, uh, respectable. I think in my parents' generation, many people went to church for exactly that reason and they would dress up accordingly. And then there are those people who go to church because, quite frankly, they have to. Uh, When I was at school, we had school chapel every morning and we had prayers in the boarding houses every night. It was pretty dull. We didn't want to go to it, but we had to. It was compulsory. For some people, uh, they come to church for reasons that have actually got nothing to do with religion at all. Uh, They want to find a husband or a wife and uh, there are many worse places to do that. And then, of course, there are people who don't go to church if they can possibly help it. Uh, Unbelievers. Uh, They perhaps will go to a wedding or a funeral, but that's it. But here's the thing. There are plenty of people who call themselves Christians who also don't go to church. Uh, They pray, they listen to sermons on the internet, or they watch a worship service uh, on television, They might even witness to their friends, but they don't go to church. So, why are you and I here this morning? I know why I'm here. Uh, I've got to preach this sermon. But why are you here? The clue that helps us answer that question correctly is in the first two verses of the book of Revelation. Look at them with me again, if you will. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in the original, the very first word in the book is the word revelation. It's a very, very important word because it means that what we're going to learn about in this book is something we could not possibly know unless Almighty God himself revealed it to us. In the original language, that is what the word revelation means. What is this revelation about? Well, it's a revelation about Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of this book. Uh, The book of Revelation tells us things 
about Jesus Christ we could not possibly know unless God himself told us. This book explains the significance of Jesus to us. And won't you please notice who this book is for? Because verse 1 says that God gave revelation to show his servants what must soon take place. So if you're a Christian, I'm sure you know that means that you are a servant of the living God. That means this book is for you. It's not just for professors in the seminary. But why do we need it? What's so special about it? Well, won't you try thinking about it like this? Imagine for a moment that I show you a photograph. Um, It's a photo of a rather smartly dressed young woman standing by the side of the road and she has a smart handbag over her shoulder. Behind her is a rather scruffy man. Uh, She can't see him, she doesn't know he's there. But he has a rather desperate expression on his face and he's reaching out with his hand towards her shoulder, the shoulder with the handbag over it. Now what is the first thought that goes through your mind when you see that photograph? Well, I guess most of us would think, oh dear, she's about to get robbed. This is about to be a robbery. He's going to steal her handbag. But then I show you another photograph. Um, It's the same situation, it's the same woman, the same scruffy man standing behind her. But this time, the photograph is taken from a bit further back and you can see the big picture. And you can see that a huge truck is bearing down on this young woman. It's just a few metres away. It was there all the time, but in the first picture... We couldn't see it because we didn't have the full picture. But now we do. And uh, we can see that the young man isn't actually trying to steal her handbag after all. He's actually trying to save her, to prevent her from being hit by the truck. What we thought was a robbery is actually a rescue. Now that, I think, is a very helpful way to think about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is God's big picture. It gives us the true perspective on things that are happening in our world today. And it's not what most people think. You see, what you and I see with our eyes, watch on television, read about in the newspapers, it isn't the full story. There's something infinitely bigger and way more significant going on behind the scenes. And that changes our understanding of reality. So Revelation, friends, is a really important book. But it's not an easy book. And so this morning what I want to do is to focus on just three features of the book of Revelation in order to get us started on the right road. If we start on the wrong road, we're going to get into terrible knots. So I want us to start on the right road by focusing on three things. Number one, I want to say something about the method of this revelation. Then I want to say something about the relevance of the book of Revelation. 
And then lastly, I want us to see that there is a reward in this remarkable book. So firstly then, the method. How does this book reveal its message to us? This is really, really important. So stay tuned and come with me again to verse 1. Can we all see verse 1? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known. Now I want you to focus on that little phrase, he made it known. Because in some Bibles that same phrase is translated as he communicated it by symbols or he sent it and signified it. That's another translation. So this revelation about Jesus Christ is communicated by symbols. In fact, everything from chapter 4 all the way through to chapter 21 is visions and pictures and symbols. That's why verse 1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. Now that's very interesting because you don't show words, do you? You show visions, you show pictures, you speak words. And that's why at the beginning of verse 2 John says that he testifies to everything that he saw. Because John saw wonderful visions and pictures. So this book communicates visually. And the question, of course, is why? I mean, the rest of the New Testament isn't written like that. The Gospels aren't written that way. The Apostle Paul didn't write his letters that way. So why is the message of Revelation given to us in symbols? Well, I suppose uh, we should actually feel rather at home with this, shouldn't we? Because we live in a very visual culture. Every day we take in vast amounts of news and data visually. But why did God use this method 2,000 years ago in the book of Revelation? Well, I want to suggest to you that one reason is that the churches that John was writing to had gone to sleep spiritually. They lost perspective. They'd started to compromise with the culture around them. And you know, whenever Christians begin to compromise and become spiritually lazy we don't actually want to hear the truth directly. So, for example, if um, Gillian and I were to have a disagreement, it doesn't happen often, it happens occasionally, but if we were to have a disagreement about something and she were to point out something in me that I am unable to deny, I'm uncomfortable admitting it. Now, actually, most people are like that. We don't like to be confronted with our sin directly and articulately. Nobody does. 
What we actually like to do is rationalise our sin, explain it away, and we're really rather good at it. But symbols, you see, catch us off guard. They have a kind of way of getting to us. And that's what happens here. Let me give you an example. Turn over, please, to chapter 2 and verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. And uh, this is a letter to the church of Thyatira. And uh, in that church, they were comfortable having a woman called Jezebel preaching the sermons. But she was teaching lies. Have a look at verse 20. This is what Jesus says to these Christians. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now what was happening was that Jezebel was teaching that once or twice a year um, you could go along to a pagan temple and uh, you could worship an idol in order to not get persecuted by the Romans. But you could still be considered a faithful Christian as long as you went to church on Sundays. She was saying you can do both. And uh, the Christians in Thyatira, well over the years, they got quite happy with that. They were saying, look, you know, we might not be perfect, but I'll tell you what, it's not easy being a Christian around here. People are hostile. But we think we're doing okay. And so, in Revelation 17, you don't need to turn to it, but in Revelation 17, John presents this woman Jezebel as a whore, as a prostitute. And she's riding on the back of a beast that turns out to be the devil. And John's point is this. You might think you're doing okay, but let me tell you that you are riding with the whore on the back of the devil. That's the reality. That's the true picture. Now let me ask you to imagine. What do you think the atmosphere was like in the church at Thyatira on Sunday morning when they heard that message? Everybody quite happy, were they? Some people snoozing off, were they? Minds wandering? I don't think so. And for some, you see, that image was so shocking that they changed their ways. And that, you see, is part of the power of symbols. You know, we want to rationalise our sin, but the symbols catch us off guard. They're designed to wake us up in areas where we've gone to sleep, spiritually. See, when you first see the symbol, you think, that doesn't apply to me. But then you read on and you find, oh dear me, yes it does. That is the power of John's method in this book. But let's move on and consider secondly the relevance of Revelation. I mean, is this book going to speak to us today? 
Well, from chapter 4 to chapter 21, all of the symbols are pointing to one main thing. They're showing us a world we don't normally see. It's a heavenly world. So we see God's temple, God's palace, God's throne. And in this um, heavenly world, we also see Christians who have died and they've been taken to be with the Lord Jesus. And together with the angels, they're surrounding God and the Lord Jesus and the Bible, interestingly. And these deceased Christians and the angels, they're praising the Lord and they're rejoicing because of the death and resurrection of Christ. And they know, they know for a certainty that Jesus is ruling over history. They know that one day Jesus will punish the devil and all his allies who've been persecuting Christians. And they know that one day Jesus will reward those Christians who persevered. Now the point of the vision is this, that in heaven, God, Jesus Christ, and his word are right at the centre. And the question is, are they at the centre of our lives too? You see, they weren't at the centre of the lives of some of the Christians in the churches in chapters 2 and 3 that we're going to get to in a couple of weeks' time. And God's purpose, you see, is that this vision of heaven should break into us and catch us off guard so that we ask ourselves, well, hang on a minute. Our God is Jesus Christ, is the Word at the centre of my life. You see, the testimony that we get in this book contradicts the world. Because, you see, the world puts itself at the centre of things, doesn't it? You know that perfectly well. But this heavenly vision contradicts the world's perspective. Sure, you remember that uh, in the Gospels, a human court judged Jesus to be guilty and wrong. That was the the world's verdict then, and it is still the world's verdict today. And you know in your own experience that the world judges us Christians to be strange, weird, and misguided. But God's revelation, as given in this book, overturns the judgments of the world. And so, as we've just seen, the the world's verdict on Jezebel was positive. You know, the the Christians in the church at Thyatira were saying, uh, yes, we can listen to this. Terribly interesting teaching. But Christ's verdict was that she was an agent of the devil. And the church needed to be shocked to do something about that. Now this is a pattern we're going to see again and again in the book. Let me give you another example. Turn to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Don't worry about that, we'll explain it next week. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. Now pause on that. The church in Sardis had an absolutely splendid reputation. Uh, The people of Sardis were saying, "You, you guys in the church, you really are the true church, aren't you? You're the real deal. Lively services. Absolutely marvellous. That was the world's assessment. What did Jesus Christ say? End of verse 1. You're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Something was terribly wrong. We'll get to that in a few weeks' time. But one of the things that that they weren't doing is that they were not witnessing to other people about Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you are not doing that, you are as dead as the people around you. Dead as a dodo. So friends, as we work through this book, May God give us grace to examine ourselves in order to see where we stand spiritually, really, truthfully. Are we alive? Or are we dead? Something that we find again and again in the Bible. So there's a place where the Apostle Paul says to Christians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. If you're taking notes, that's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Because of all people, Christians should not be self-deceived. And uh, this revelation of God's heavenly world is crucial in order for us to know the truth and to grasp in our inner being that the world's assessment of things is completely wrong. See, the point is that without God's revelation, you and I are quite likely to follow the false claims of the world. And the scary thing is, we're quite likely to feel comfortable doing so. And so we need this revelation from heaven to break in to our hearts and minds. But then more precisely, what is this revelation really all about? Look with me again at chapter 1, verse 1, and then verse 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. 
So what is this revelation all about? It sounds like it's about the future, doesn't it? The context says otherwise. Look at verse 5, for example. Verse 5 says this greeting is from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now that verse is saying that Jesus is already the faithful witness. He is already the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, his kingdom has begun. Or look at verse 6. What about us? What are we? Well, he has made us to be a kingdom. Now that's talking about today. We're already in the kingdom. Uh, Most of us, most of the time, might not feel like that. It might not feel like anything special is happening. And that's why John uses that fascinating phrase at the end of verse 3, where he says, the time is near. So it's an interesting phrase, that, because it's a deliberate echo of something that the Lord Jesus said right at the very beginning of his ministry. And it helps us understand what John means here. If you are a thoughtful Bible reader, and I hope you are, you'll remember that in Mark chapter 1, Jesus began his ministry by saying, the kingdom of God is near. Now what did Jesus mean? What he meant was that in him the kingdom of God had arrived but there was more to come. That's what Jesus meant. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, When Gillian was expecting Alice uh, we could have said Alice is near. Now that that wouldn't have meant that Alice didn't exist. She did exist. She was in the womb. But there was more to come. And aren't we pleased about that? And what John is saying, you see, in verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1, is that God has enabled him to see the full significance of Christ's work of salvation in the past, in the present, and in the future. God has revealed the whole picture to him and through John to us. Salvation is already here. I mean, it's available for everybody who turns to Christ in faith. And it has real consequences for our lives in the present. But there's more to come. There's more to come. The time is near. So what have we said so far? Revelation is God's big picture. It shows us the full significance of the salvation that God has provided for us in Jesus and why it matters. It shows us what's going on in heaven today with Jesus at the very centre 
and how that reality contradicts the values of the world. And it shows us that although God's kingdom has started, there is much more to come. But then lastly, for the readers of this book, there is a remarkable reward. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. I wonder if you can see that right at the very beginning of the book, we're being challenged to make a personal response. How? How are we to respond? Well, we should hear it and we should obey it. Not just hear it. Not just hear it. But take it to heart. That means we should value it. We should value what is said about Christ in this book. We should actually value it more than anything else and more than all the opinions of the popular culture around us. That is the number one application of this book. What do you and I value above all else? Family? Academic achievement? Success, a relationship, our health, or is it God and his word? The the Apostle John, who is the human author uh, of the book of Revelation, also wrote the fourth gospel. And in that gospel, he gives us a fascinating insight into the way that many people respond to Jesus. You don't need to turn to it. Uh, But um, John 12, verse 42, John makes this comment. At the same time, many even among the leaders believed in Jesus. Sounds promising. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, what was the problem with the Pharisees? Why were they afraid? Why were they keeping their faith under wraps? And John goes on to tell us in the next verse, John 12, verse 43, because they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Very telling. I mean, that could have been written yesterday, couldn't it? What do we value more, I wonder? Praise from God? Praise from men. You see, the evidence that our faith is real is that in everything we do, we want to show how great God is and not how great we are. And how do we do that? by valuing his word and taking it to heart. Now, won't you please notice uh, the reward that is promised 
to those who respond positively to this revelation. This is very important. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. When we hear and obey, God says we will be blessed. The blessing is actually the main point of verses 1 to 3. If you want to be blessed, you've got to hear, believe and obey the word of the Lord in this book. So what is the blessing? What is the blessing? There are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. Say more about that next week. The first is right here at the beginning. The last two are in the final chapter, chapter 22, and I'd like you to turn there now, page 888 in the Church Bible. Revelation 22, verse 7. Revelation 22, verse 7, page 888. The Lord Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Now that sounds very similar to what we saw at the beginning, but now look at the last blessing in verse 14. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. So can you see that in Revelation, blessing is going into the new heavens and the new earth with God and enjoying eternal life with him. In other words, it's salvation. Salvation is the reward for those who hear, believe and obey the teaching about Jesus in this book. They will go through the gates into the celestial city. Now is that not remarkable? Is that not what you want for your life? I do hope it is. Because what happens if it isn't? Look at verse 15. Outside are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everybody who loves and practices falsehood. Do you know, when I, when I read that, I always used to think that uh, that was talking about pagans who never ever set a foot in a church. But it's not. They're included, of course. But in the book of Revelation, immorality refers not so much to illicit sex, but rather to spiritual intercourse with other gods. It's talking about valuing other things more highly than the God of the Bible. So what happens when, now listen to this, what happens 
when people in church who call themselves Christians do not hear and do not characteristically obey God's word because they value other things more, what happens? Verse 18. Jesus says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. So he's talking to the church. Nobody else is hearing the words of the prophecy in this book, are they? I warn everybody who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now that sounds like you can lose your salvation, doesn't it? But actually, it's talking about the people who thought they were saved when all along they weren't. They were self-deceived in their, in their faith. So you see, friends, as we take this journey through the book of Revelation, we must examine ourselves if we're making any progress at all in godliness, we must pray for grace to continue. But if you have no desire to hear God's word and to obey it, my dear friend, you really ought to ask yourself whether you know God at all. And if that is the case, I do want to urge you to get right with God while there's still time. And we in this church would be delighted to help you. If you don't know how to do that, come and speak to me or one of the team afterwards. But as we close, let's return to the question that we began with this morning. Why go to church? Why is it necessary for us to meet together? Because lots of Christians don't think it is. Well, think about worldliness. What is worldliness? Worldliness is what any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. That's what worldliness does. And you see, when the world hears what we believe and they see how we behave, they think we're weird. But one writer puts it rather well. He says, if you put a normal, sane person on an island populated by insane people, it's only a matter of time before they start to become like everybody else. And you see, that's how it is when the Christian doesn't come to church but spends all his time on the island of the world. If we spend nearly all our time with unbelievers, we're going to think that what they believe is normal and what Christians believe is strange. That's what's going to happen. And the purpose of church is so that you and I can come together and say, 
do you know what? We're not weird after all. We really are normal. And those people out there who seem so normal, oh dear, they're terribly weird because they're out of touch with reality. How can we assure ourselves of that and not deceive ourselves into thinking we're normal when we're not? By gathering together every week to marvel at God's big picture. To see the world as it really is, not as our friends say it is. To be reminded that in heaven, in the control room of the entire universe, Jesus is at the centre. To be reminded that even this morning, Christians who've lived and died and been taken to be with Jesus are rejoicing because they know for a certainty that one day Jesus will punish and destroy the devil and all his allies and reward those Christians who persevere. And in order for us to respond rightly to God's big picture, I need you to help me, and dare I say, you need me to help you. So let's take to heart this morning the main idea of Revelation 1, 1 to 3. My goodness me, it's going to take us a long time to get through this book. Here is the main idea of those three verses. When we hear and believe God's word about Jesus Christ in this book, we will be blessed with salvation. That's the big idea. That's why Revelation was written. That's why this book is in your Bible. It's why we come to church. We come to church to hear God's wisdom and to be reminded how absolutely foolish and bankrupt the wisdom of the world really is. May God give you and I grace to hear, to want to hear, and to obey. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, please will you cause us to want to hear your word, to believe it, to value it, and to obey it, so that we may receive your blessing of salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name.